As a lawyer, ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at Posh.com. Say, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello, my friends. It is good to see you after several weeks. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to be back together. And we're also joined by Alex Lawson. Yes, hello. I think I used to do a legal news podcast with a couple of your kids. Uh, it's been such a long time. Uh, I don't. I don't really recognize you guys. I don't know. I was going <laughs> to say this is a podcast legal fiction because I have seen Alex in the interim. So that's uh, true. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> can't keep you guys apart even when we have a little break with the show. But it yeah. is nice to be back. And boy, um, we thought the summer would be slow, but we've come back to a time where. A little later in the show, we've got a lot to catch up on with the legal industry and how it's handling the surge in COVID cases because of the Delta variant. Yes, um, tremendous amount of news there uh, that the the situation uh, evolves very quickly, as does the legal industry. Um, Before we we get into that, though, um, one small programming note. We hope everybody's been enjoying the Pro Se Movie Club in our absence. Um, The regular Pro Se show will sort of keep going from here on out. We're going to take one week off of Pro Se Movie Club next week, um, and then the following week we'll be back with uh, our discussion of the Jeff Nichols uh Supreme Court uh movie Loving uh which we're very excited about but we assure um, you that we will be back though we were not canceled because of our episode about the devil's advocate in case <laughs> well, you were we came very worried. close but we squeaked through and we'll get to come back with a, a classier movie next time around I mean but, if anybody was going to fall on the sword for that one it was going to be me uh so I appreciate <laughs> you both clarifying that uh, on everyone's uh, on, on, on my behalf for everyone, um, but we could probably just get to the show now. So, and I know we have some, uh, some news to get to. Um, yeah, actually, Alex, I think you're up first with our, our first news story today. Yes. So there's a very interesting story, uh, this week out of the first circuit and it's, uh, sort of that classic tale, um, which I think anybody, uh, in the legal industry who's listening is familiar with of a, um, a federal appeals court saying, well, um, the evidence against this person is pretty compelling, but uh, this person's legal representation was so bad that maybe we should do this entire trial over. Uh, <laughs> that's that's what we're talking about now. When your lawyer is so bad, you get a new trial, uh, a, a a a breath of new life uh, for uh, for for defendants. Um, that was the view of a First Circuit panel. Uh, this week that basically restarted this uh, public corruption trial for a former U.S. Army colonel um, who was who had been convicted of providing bribes to uh, Haitian officials. Um, lots of different sort of strands here, but it gets to the sort of competency of counsel and all sorts of interesting things. It sounds like the setup to a, a bad lawyer joke, but let's get into <laughs> the actual facts here. What what kind of corruption are we talking about? What went on? Yeah, so we're we're dealing with a a sort of pet topic of mine, which is a conviction under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, 
which is a law that um, bans people from bribing foreign government officials to curry favor in business. Um, but that's not really that important for what we're talking about today. This case surrounds um, fi- uh, charges that were filed against former Army Colonel Joseph Baptiste um, and an attorney named Richard Bonsi. And during a jury trial there, those men were found guilty of, like I say, bribing Haitian officials to get in on this uh, port project there that was worth about $84 million. Um, the evidence against them was quite strong, and that's why I say that these sort of parameters of public corruption law don't really matter that much, because what they actually did, at least according to the evidence, seems pretty clear. Much of the case rested upon recordings of the former Colonel Baptiste's uh, conversations with undercover FBI agents, uh, basically offering them money. Um, would you like a bribe? Is yeah, there any way right. that you would take a bribe from me <laughs> for things? Yes, um, and that sort of paved the way for what seemed to be a pretty easy conviction, and it actually was an easy conviction. He was convicted. And wiretap, as, as Bill is Bill's joking around, but I mean, th- like wiretaps with government agents is almost always open and shut. In terms of trying to sort of, um, in terms of trying to convict certain defendants, but the case went um, a little bit astray when um, federal pro- when uh, the defendants basically flagged some serious deficiencies with their own counsel. So you know it's obviously a very clear case of X, Y, or Z, but the uh, uh, Baptiste's counsel was sort of not doing the things that he was supposed to do in the eye of the defendants, and they moved to overturn the conviction uh, for that reason, and that sort of gets us to the to the current uh, mode here. How bad are we talking about? I mean, did this attorney, <laughs> you know, did they show up in court in some sort of leather suit? Uh, did they, did, were they held in contempt multiple times? <laughs> Guys, this is a callback to the movie show. I suggest you go listen to the movie is, show. Anyway, I mean, yeah, I mean, I love the cross promotion. Uh, uh, but yeah, that's no, I mean, stuff, um, yeah. you know, how how bad was this this attorney? What exactly did they do? Yeah, so the the evidentiary record is is pretty clear here. There's there's not even disagreement between the government and uh, these defendants on exactly what happened. The disagreement is over how much it should matter, right? Um, but we should highlight a couple of things. So, um, among, uh, among other sort of shortcomings, defense counsel sort of did not do a fulsome review of documents, um, did not, was not so prompt in, in, in responding to the government's, uh, overtures, uh, did not subpoena any witnesses or formulate his own witnesses or anything like that, um, did not contact any uh, expert witnesses about Haitian law or like, you know, government law or anything like that. It was just sort of like autopilot stuff. But then here's my favorite. Um, there are six government witnesses that were called and the lawyer, the, the defense lawyer only cross examined two of them. So he only he like barely did cross. And then even in the two crosses that he did, he actually elicited damaging testimony for his own clients <laughs> during the cross. Yeah. Um, so. <laughs> wow. I mean, that list, Alex, it's like, hey, what do lawyers do at a trial? And you just listed like everything they're supposed to do. It's it's almost like he wasn't even there. Except yeah. then you tack on 
he actually did damage to the case as well. Right. And all of that led to the the, the district court to to throw out the convictions as well. And then um, you know, the 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 appeals court basically gave it a rubber stamp this week, um, where none of the factual stuff is really in dispute. Um, but it's just this question of balancing whether or not this like sort of for lack of a better term, absentee lawyering is enough to sort of set aside the very sort of voluminous evidence that's against them of committing public corruption. And the First Circuit at least uh, seemed to think so in its opinion. It said that, you know, the prosecutors have made a strong case, but there are requirements to have like vigorous defense uh, counsel, you know, present. And that wasn't the case here. Here was the um, here was sort of the money quote on that quote. No one denies that the strength of the prosecution's case is a factor in the prejudice analysis, but it is not the end all and be all, which just means there are other factors you have to um, consider other than just like, okay, the evidence is very strong, but like if the person's lawyer is actively damaging them on cross-examination, perhaps we should get a new trial. And that's exactly what happened here. As a lawyer, ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at Posh.com. Over the last several weeks, the Delta variant has really driven up COVID infections around the country. And that's made a lot of people have to grapple with this new phase of the pandemic. And that includes courts and also law firms. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're seeing a bit of a mess when it comes to the court side. And I'd like to unpack how they're approaching it. It's varying wildly from courthouse to courthouse. Some courts are reinstating restrictions that they'd only just lifted. And others are actually doing the opposite and relaxing certain social distancing measures. Well, I'm sure the, you know, I'm sure the courts were uh, in the same mindset that we were, where we thought this was over and we thought we had sort of a clear process to opening back up and getting back into things. But um, uh, obviously that has been upended in just the last two weeks or so. So let's get into the details here about like what is going on? I know uh, Jack Carp wrote a wrote an interesting story about it. So Amber, why don't you break it down for us? What's happening with the courts? Yeah, Jack had a really nice story where he just kind of got a lay of the land and talked to a lot of the court officials who are making these decisions. And they basically acknowledged to him, almost to a person, that it's a confusing time. And courts are also facing that confusion about going back and forth on restrictions. Mm-hmm. Um, but they stress that the goal here, of course is to keep attorneys, staff, juries, everybody that comes into a courthouse safe. So here's the kind of three buckets about what restrictions are um, going back into place. And then maybe we can talk a little bit about some things that are going against that tide. Yeah. The first one's masks, which requiring face masks is the pandemic related measure that courts seem to be returning to the most. Um, That, makes sense, I think, on the face of it because it's pretty effective at keeping people safe, but it doesn't disrupt having um, activities happen in courts. Mm -hmm. So a lot of them are reinstating mask mandates. 
State courts in Florida, California, Colorado, Indiana have all put mask mandates back in place, even for people who are vaccinated against COVID-19. So those mask requirements apply to everybody. It's jurors, attorneys, basically anybody who walks in the courthouse doors. Yeah. So in addition to masks, I want to talk about the jurisdictions that are implementing things around testing for COVID. New York state courts are the example here. There's no vaccine mandate for staff, but they are making any unvaccinated employees undergo regular testing for the virus. This is a new policy. Um, It applies to all the judges, um, all the court employees like bailiffs and, and just people working in the courthouse. And just to give it a little perspective about how many people might have to be tested, the court system in New York State has more than 16,000 employees. Only about 7,700 have been vaccinated so far. So it's a pretty large pool of people that will have to undergo regular testing in that jurisdiction. And then we also have another thing that courts probably didn't really want to do. But some of them are starting to do it, which is suspending jury trials. Yeah, we, there, I feel like there was so much uh, energy expended about like how jury trials can possibly work. And that was yeah. something I'm sure people um, were were eager to get back to. And now we're like, I mean, just like everything else, we're kind of going forward and now going back. Well, so, and we had, yeah. we had talked, too, about the the toll that it took on, you know, criminal trials have yeah. to happen. There have to be arraignments. There has to be a lot of stuff that needs to happen in courthouses that I know was was slowed down a lot by this. Absolutely. And that's made it really hard for jurisdictions that feel like they're yo-yoing here. Um, but there's there's a couple of places that are suspending in-person jury trials, specifically Texas and Alaska have done some of this. It's only been a few months since some of those courts even resumed in-person jury trials. So this really does feel like a real sort of lurch forward, pull back scenario. And I think we'll probably see a lot of that as we move forward in this phase of the pandemic. The entire country resides now in this liminal period of deciding on various public health factors and uh, and other things about like how severe of a stage of the pandemic we are in. And I... I would imagine the court system is similar, um, but you, I mean, I mean, you said, I mean, we, we are talking about various restrictions that are being imposed or reimposed, but you had referenced that s- some jurisdictions are actually still sort of opening up or loosening, right? How is that going? Yeah, this one actually surprised me, and I'm not sure why it did, because we are in a really messy period where things are not the same in every jurisdiction in terms of the case counts and that kind of stuff, and I think we're seeing that reflected. There's courts in Illinois and California that are actually currently relaxing social distancing requirements for jurors. And when Jack was reporting on this, he talked to an Illinois judge that explained exactly why that is. Um, this judge said that social distancing really puts a limit on the number of jury trials they can actually accomplish mm-hmm. because if, you know, they're having to separate people out, they just can't pack in enough people to fill all these juries. So courts have really struggled with balancing two competing rights, one being speedy trial rights of the right. defendants, and then the other is public health. And it's it's you can see how it's pretty tough to figure out which of those trumps. And it depends a lot on the circumstances of how many cases there are, how how's the Delta variant in the area. Right. So for Illinois, speedy trial deadlines had been suspended during previous months of the pandemic, but that suspension ends on October 1st. So they're going to try to start holding more jury trials as much as that's feasible with social distancing requirements um, that they've they've started to relax. What they've done instead is said that every juror 
who comes to them and says that they want to stay six feet apart, they will accommodate those people. But they're sort of putting the onus on the jurors to say that that's something they need to participate in the system. So it's a bit of a shift in tone there. Um, this new policy, of course, only applies to criminal trials because those, those are the ones that are the most pressing. Yeah. Right. And civil trials are going to continue, but at reduced capacity, many things online. Um, and if the numbers continue to rise, we might see California and Illinois back off of their loosening restrictions, too. We're just in a period now where it seems like there's going to be a lot of back and forth with what the courts decide. And as you alluded to, Amber, in your intro, these same dynamics are playing out in the legal industry as uh, in addition to the country's courthouses. Obviously, it's a very different context, um, you know, a private, very competitive, very client facing world versus a public service, you know, a courthouse. They're very different worlds. But um, um, so what we've seen thus far, and it's really accelerated in the last two weeks, is that um, much like the rest of the country's employers, America's big law firms have um, a been pushing back their reopening dates, saying, mm-hmm. um, you know, we are pushing these these back by weeks or months, um, and you will continue to work from home. Maybe come in when you want to, um, and then also b uh, mandating that their workers get vaccinated if they want to come in um, and work in the office in person. Yeah, the vaccine mandates have really. Um, skyrocketed the ones we've heard about in recent weeks. So let's dig into that. What are What's Big Law saying on the vaccine front? So there were a few firms that did this long before the Delta stuff, you know, really took off this summer. Um, Davis Wright Tremaine, um, a firm with eight offices and about 500 lawyers. They're a big, um, uh, they're well-known in the media world. Um, uh, they mandated vaccination for in-office workers way back in January during the peak of the um, uh, the earlier winter wave. Um, another firm, Sanford Heisler, uh, a civil rights firm, we've talked about them on the podcast, with uh, six offices around the country. They made a similar move in, I believe, April. But the really big wave of these vaccine mandates have uh, you know, started in with the rise of the Delta variant. On July 20th, Cooley, uh, an international firm with 16 offices, 1,000 attorneys, uh, they announced that workers choosing to return to their office would, in fact, need to be vaccinated. Um, the floodgates then opened in the weeks since um, Hogan Lovells, Dickinson Wright, Lowenstein Sandler, uh, they all announced mandates the, the in that last week of July. Um, and then since then, we've seen, you know, all, almost all of the biggest big law firms have weighed in Cravath, Norton Rose, Davis Polk, Debevois, Aiken Gump, McDermott. I don't need to read them all off. But, you know, many, many of these sort of big white shoe firms have all offered up different, um, you know, mandates for for vaccination for their employees. These are lawyers that we're talking about here. So uh, the mandates come with the obvious yes. caveats that people can seek exemptions on a case by case basis for religious reasons for medical reasons it feels like these firms really took seriously the kind of stuff they were telling law 360 months ago about how to do a mandate correctly sure um (laughs) yeah so i mean they have tried to to you know make sure that they are staying within the boundaries of what is legal but um some of them have been fairly serious in their language paul weiss in particular in one of our stories uh our reporter noted that they explicitly wrote to their employees that they would deactivate key cards for unvaccinated employees. Um, the wave of these vaccine mandates continues uh, all the way up to today, and it will keep going, I'm sure. Um, just today, Law360 reported that Perkins Coie, uh, the 12th biggest firm in the country, 
uh, announced uh, their own vaccine mandate. But I thought it was interesting. I was reading the story right before we got on the air, and um, they had a, a wrinkle that I hadn't seen in many of these. It may exist in some of these other ones that I hadn't seen, but um, that they will offer a, quote, uh, testing alternative for those who are unvaccinated or prefer not to disclose their vaccination status. So taking a little bit of a less hard line on the mandate there, you can, I, I, you know, I assume that they will come up with a procedure for you to get tested very regularly if you don't want to disclose. But, um, but, you know, we are seeing these vaccine mandates imposed by, by almost all of the biggest firms in the country willingness of certain people to get the vaccine or not get the vaccine is only one part of this. Um, But there is the matter of just sort of the general opening of the private sector again and offices um, and for, for for people to come into work. Law firms are no exception. I know that the vaccines sort of have a lot to do with this, but like what is the sort of reopening of the law firm picture look like these days yeah i mean i think what makes this whole thing so tricky is that there's a lot of confusion over the impact of delta on even vaccinated people so right yeah um you know all the discussion of breakthrough cases and um, the efficacy of the vaccines in you know preventing infections versus preventing hospitalizations um so the other big corollary here for you know of, of the one part of it is the vaccine mandates but the other big part has been um delays to um you know to get everyone back in the office every day uh most of the firms that i mentioned just now have done these two things in tandem so for instance on tuesday just this week uh shepherd mullen sent a memo to its attorneys announcing that the firm's original full scale return to office you know every day kind of plan um, that had been set for September 7th would be pushed back indefinitely. The memo encouraged attorneys in the meantime to come to work one to two days a week if they want to, but only if they wear a mask, maintain distance, and most crucially, prove that they've been vaccinated. Uh, the quote from the firm's memo, We realize that all of these rules will not be popular. We need to do what is best for the organization and our business, taking all considerations into account. Um, the memo urged caution to Shepard Mullen employees. It said, you know, um, you, they should just stay home in the meantime if they've engaged in any riskier conduct like big yeah. indoor events. Again, we don't know if <laughs> if Delta can be carried by people who are vaccinated. The level of exposure versus it, it is all somewhat unclear. So um, they also, the, the, um, the Shepard Mullen memo said that, that People with children or other family members at home who cannot get vaccinated will also not be expected to come into the office. Um, uh, it was pretty reassuring, um, the, the, the memo, or at least they seemed like they were trying to be, where they said, yeah. um, quote, this is your call, of course, but no partner or management team member is going to look askance if you want to avoid going out of your home for a while. So, I, you know, I, this the, what we've painted here is that there are a lot of sort of varying approaches, but they fall into these two big buckets and i think and i'll get us out on this i think the the interesting thing here is we've been talking about explicit policies here you know hard vaccine mandates yeah uh, we're going to push back the opening of the office you know there's been much talk in 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 these firms of hybrid approaches of who will be in the office every day who won't be uh these we heard about the one firm with the testing alternatives i think the very interesting thing here will be how those explicit policies mesh with the unwritten culture and the competitiveness of a big law firm that it is, um, yeah. you know, it's easy to say this stuff. It's easy to write it down in a memo, email to all your people, send a quote to law 360, 
But it's much harder to implement this stuff in the real world conditions. I mentioned at the outset, this is a client facing business when, you know, it is built around the billable hour. It is built around answering an email at two in the morning. Um, time, time will tell and how those forces interact with these explicit policies and how, you know, this, this stated, uh, policy of, uh, the, the, the health of our employees is the number one thing and, and we're going to do this and it's all going to be very, very sort of standardized how that then begins, begins to, to change as real world conditions come into play. I think only time will tell. show is something offbeat and Alex I know you brought one for us today yes so the tale of the pandemic has been quite long Um, it lingers in our society and the litigation continues apace and so I don't think we should really be surprised to see some more obscure legal arguments unearthed you know sort of the longer that this goes on And all of this is a long way for me to say that, um, yes, the time has come for us to do some Third Amendment talk. Finally. Can we? Wow. I mean. Wow. Uh, Yeah. Usually you only get the Third Amendment in a history class. So this is good. Well, I mean, I, I mean, should we maybe go over the parameters? I mean, okay. I mean, I think I think most people probably know the 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 Third Amendment is something is extremely obscure and what you have to know is that it uh bars the government from um quartering a soldier sure uh in any house without the consent of the owner uh it's uh, the in real, a time of peace it's the real b-side of the Do I have that right, rights Bill? you know it's yeah. uh yeah. it's you just it's it feels like a vestigial organ or something um yes the reason we're talking about it this week, though, is that this came up in the context of the uh, CDC's, the Center for, for Disease Control's um, sort of conditional extension of the COVID-19 eviction moratorium um, for, uh, you know, tenants who are renting, who could attest to their, dial, uh, their, their dire financial uh, situation arising from the pandemic. This was one of the first sort of sweeping government actions taken during the pandemic. It has been extended a couple of times now with certain conditions tied to it. Um, there are lots of parameters to this, but uh, most recently this drew a lawsuit from the Alabama Association of Realtors and the Georgia Association of Realtors. These are, of course, people who own property and, um, and feel as though, you know, the government giving safe harbor to tenants who can't pay their rent implicates um, various uh, constitutional issues. But the reason we're talking about it this week is that there was an amicus brief in that case filed by, wait for it, the Third Amendment Lawyers Association. Not a lot of work for the wow. uh, the old the old TALA these days, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. ever since... Ever since the Monroe uh, administration, I think <laughs> things have been a little slow on the Third yes. Amendment beat. It's it's interesting. I and again, I don't want to. This sort of caught some flack on um, 
on like legal Twitter this week, and I don't like to like breathe too much life into that. Um, because again, this is an amicus brief, so I'm not. This is not really being argued by the parties in the case, but it is an interesting sort of uh, rumination on a very obscure area of the law. Um, but basically, what this association, this this you know vaunted uh, Third Amendment Lawyers <laughs> Association, is saying is that um, there are so many people being cordoned off, um, being you know sort of spared from rent payments that some of them must include soldiers. <laughs> wow. That then this might implicate the Third Amendment quartering sure. of soldiers thing. Here's oh, the here's the geez. here's the here's the operative quote from the from their amicus brief. Ordinarily the eviction process would play out in the courts. The CDC eviction moratorium prevents this. Plaintiffs are being forced to house individuals, i.e. quarter them without <laughs> sure. their consent. Given the size of the population at issue, some of these tenants are bound to be soldiers. Now, I love whenever there's something in a legal filing that's like, well, I mean, some of this probably applies. Well, right? and they get, yeah, well, and they get away <laughs> with this a little bit with the amicus part of it, right? Like the, all they're doing is raising an interest sure, for an their issue. group. Right. Well, and their issue. Um, I don't I don't want to be really pedantic here, but uh, <laughs> please we talk go about the for definition it. They, they, they certainly are. So, <laughs> well, yes. I just feel like can we talk about the definition of quartering? Because I don't think it means what they think it means. That's certainly right, Amber. And this obviously touched off a lot of this. A, a lot of people got in there, got in their jabs. I may or may not have tweeted out a picture of the Third Amendment uh, Lawyers Association likening them to the we demand to be taken seriously uh, Joe Bluth arrested development photo. <laughs> it was not good. a big deal. You did a good job. Th th thank you. Um, I'm now the person who recites their tweets on his podcast. <laughs> anyway, there's lots of interesting sort of legal, you know, sort of uh, back and forth going is on there? here. Is there? I yeah. Well, I mean, well, uh, well, at least there was for a couple hours on Wednesday. Okay, well, let's, if you'll let's if, you, if, you, if you'll cut me a break, people. Bill. Yeah. yeah, Alex, I know you want to bring up one of the tweets from one of the more scholarly people. That yeah, yeah, this. the uh, the famous UCLA uh, law professor Eugene Volokh uh, weighed in on this. He did a little blog on it, which got to what you were saying, Amber, about quartering. I mean, quartering already is kind of like a very antiquated type of term in this regard. Um, but he wrote um, a pretty interesting blog on reason that was that that really got to this, which was he said, quote, my first glance interpretation of quartering is that it refers to the government placing a soldier in some house, not some house being rented in his private capacity by someone who happens to be a soldier. So if my tenant happens to be a soldier and he forfeits my initial consent by failing to pay his rent and thus breaching the lease agreement, his continuing to live in my house does not involve his being quartered right i mean so, it seems like quartered is the you know is the key and it's the verb here that that you know it's that the government is acting in such a way that it impinges on your liberties it Correct. also seems crazy right that the cdc could in theory have written um an eviction moratorium that was like this applies to all citizens unless they're a member of the armed <laughs> services yeah I, I hadn't thought about that that's, but that's, yes. i mean yeah, I mean, I, I just don't think the Third Amendment Lawyers Association respects the troops. I just, you know, it's that's where we're at, that they're, you know, this argument, anti-troop. I just I just want to know what they talk about when they're not doing this. I mean, like I said, I mean, I didn't know they existed until this week. 
Do they talk about, is it PR for the Third Amendment? Are they also, formulating legal those, theories? I don't know. Is this one of those things where it's an association, in quotes, and it's really just one guy? No, these are all, I don't know. These are all, these are all important <laughs> questions. Um, <laughs> yeah. That we're, probably, we're probably spending more time talking about this than the it would take to read all of the jurisprudence about the Third Amendment. I know that there <laughs> right. is yes. a shocking, yeah. shockingly small number of, of rulings on the Third Amendment. I feel really good about the pro se bingo card, though, because I didn't think we'd ever get Third Amendment marked off. And here we are. Well, you know, we're what, whatever, four and a half years in here and we and we finally got to it. So that's something to hang our hat on, I think. What a great way to end today's show. I want to thank you guys for being back with me today. Thanks a lot, Alex. Thank you. And Bill. See you guys next week. Also, want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, and a whole bunch of contributing reporters this week, including Jack Karp, Haley Knoth, Abra Coe, Sarah Martinson, Anna Sanders, Justin Wise, and Emily Lever. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. And if you like Pro Se, go out there and leave us a written review anywhere you're listening to this podcast. That really does help other people find our show. If you want to read more about anything we talked about, just head to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. And we'll see you back here next week.